Welcome to the Digital Brand Builder Podcast, where we bring you the best growth strategies from the world's experts to help build your business fast. And now, here's your host, Mark Fidelman. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Digital Brand Builder Podcast. Joining me today is Ethan Decker, and we're going to talk about the hidden science of buyers and brands. Ethan, could you give us a hundred word or less bio about yourself? Thanks for having me on. I am a scientist by training, but a marketer by trade. I grew up doing ecology and evolutionary research, but now I've been doing brand science, marketing strategy, and advertising for the past couple decades. And you've worked with, you know, big brands like Kellogg's, Gillette, Duracell, Pepsi, Domino's, Hotels. Correct. Correct. Although I've also worked with a few small brands like Brock or Izzy or Naked Juice. Um, so let's let's just dive right in, shall we? Now, what is the hidden science of buyers and brands? What do you mean by that? I mean that there is a vein of research that has uncovered what are essentially universal laws, or at least very, very large empirical patterns about how buyers buy and how brands grow and how a market is partitioned. And very few people know about it, even though it's 40 to 50 years old. But how are you gathering? I assume it's data. How are they gathering data 50 years ago? Was this by written surveys? I mean, how does this all work? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Nowadays, a lot of it is digitized and it's much easier to do with scanners and point of sale data. But for 50 to 100 years, people have been doing market research to understand consumers and understand buyer behavior and buyer patterns. Oh, what's hidden about it? Outside of the academic world of Australia. And in the past 10 or 20 years, it's finally getting to see the light of day around the rest of the world. And companies are finally realizing that these empirical patterns are, are pretty robust. They're pretty universal and they unlock a lot of, of potential for their brands and keep people from doing a lot of boneheaded things like trying to push water uphill that defy the laws of buyers and brands. Okay. So I understand all that. Is it, what's changed in 50 years to make it even more interesting or has it, has it always been there and we just haven't been able to extract it as, as well as we can now? I think the, the number one issue is that it's always been there. It's just kind of sat in a dusty corner of academia and it's finally starting to be circulated and disseminated more broadly in the worlds of, of marketing and certainly in different markets in you know North America and Europe and South America and other places. Okay. And explain to us how you extract this hidden data and then we'll get into how you use it after that. Well, when I got into marketing a couple decades ago, I was, of course, wondering what's really true? What's the foundation? I was a scientist and in marketing, people are full of trends and fads and you hear things about love marks or purpose-driven brands, or these days it's all about social media influencers. And I wanted to know what's real. Can we separate fact from fiction? So I went back to what I know well, which is academia and really explored the primary research in the literature and found that there was this vein of research that uh, was very poorly known and very uh, rarely used by marketers. 
And so it's a little bit about the data itself, but more it's about the models and the principles and the laws that were developed by uh, Andrew Ehrenberg and other folks at what is now called the Ehrenberg Bass Institute uh, in the University of South Australia. And they developed a, a nice little set of, of, again, kind of empirical patterns and robust laws that keep showing up over and over for everything from dish soap to uh, luxury watches. Okay, but how, how is that information gathered? Where is it coming from? They originally gathered their information by doing basic consumer surveys or looking at what's called panel data. Panel data is when you recruit, let's say, 10,000 people across Australia to log how much margarine they buy and eat or how many groceries they buy and where they buy their groceries. There's people that actually do this? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I if you pay them, people do almost anything. I, I mean, I remember doing a Nielsen survey like in the year 2000, and you had to write down everything you did. I was pretty good about it, but I wasn't yep. exact. It's not like today oh, yeah. where they just watch you on TV without you even knowing. So that, that's pretty exact. Correct. Uh, so so that, is that pretty accurate data gathering then? Is that considered accurate where they're just you're it, writing down how much margin you use? Uh, it is pretty good. And well, there are two levels. The level of, of normal panel data that these folks used was really about purchasing. And purchasing is a little easier to track because when people bring things home from the grocery store, they can just write it down or they can these days just scan their receipt. So Nielsen has hundreds of thousands of people and other, other companies like IRI, hundreds of thousands of people around the world who, for a little bit of money, are part of these panels and they scan every receipt that they buy or that they, they get from the grocery store so that Nielsen and IRI and others can then have a pretty good sample size and pretty good behavioral data that's pretty reliable about what you're buying and where you're buying it and how frequently you're buying it. Okay. All right, so now that I understand how it's gathered, how do they, or and how are you using this data in a way that nobody else is, that is, is why we're saying it's, it's the hidden science of buyers and brands. What's, what's hidden about it, and then what are you doing differently than everyone else with it? The hidden piece is that uh, there are just these empirical patterns and, and ultimately some models, some kind of statistical models that summarize and capture why people, well, not why, but how people buy, how they buy across different brands, and how a category is then structured with the brands in that category. And it's hidden, again, just because nobody really has, has seen this. It's, it's kind of like uh, when Galileo first figures out some laws of physics uh, and laws of, of uh the planetary motion, that doesn't go very far outside of his little circle of friends unless it gets published, unless it gets shared, unless people read about it. So that's the piece that makes it kind of hidden. Uh, the other reason I guess it's hidden is because most of the times when brands look at their data, they don't look at the entire market. They're really focused on their own brand and how people are buying their own brand. And secondly, and this goes back to the panels I talked about, a lot of brands just do a consumer survey and ask you, how much margarine do you buy? Uh, how often do you eat margarine? What do you like margarine for? What are the occasions you use margarine for? And it requires or relies on people's memories, which are 
pretty crappy, frankly. Very. And I know if you asked me those questions, I'd fail miserably. Right. right. I can't remember what I had for breakfast last week, much less the past three months. That's how I am. Don't Anyone listening out there, don't survey me on any of this stuff. It will not be accurate. <laughs> Mark's a terrible study. <laughs> now, if I carry around a notebook with me, I mean, if I was diligent about it, then, uh, then perhaps. Okay, right. so, all right, now I understand um, how this is all done. And so what are you doing with that information to make it relevant to brands? And, and I would agree, most brands aren't doing it at this level. Uh, right. Some of the right. bigger brands it. are, they can afford it. Part of the problem is it's not cheap to do what you're doing. So No. And frankly, again, I'm not necessarily doing all the work, but what I'm doing is discovering it, blowing the dust off of it, and helping simplify it so people do understand what the hell do you do with these empirical patterns or what do the implications, what are the implications for these laws? Yeah. Okay. So yeah. give us an example, I mean, uh, to illustrate what it is when all this comes together, you're finding. Sure. Here's one example. There is a law called the duplication of purchase law. It's kind of a clunky name, but then again, it's academics for you. <laughs> did you but, invent that name or is it something? No, I did not. I did not. Uh, I, I call it the law of, of buying around or the law of shopper promiscuity, Yeah. Uh, which is to say we have some things we like, but we're not that loyal and we're not that faithful. So uh, for instance, let's go, let's go back to ketchup. I assume you eat ketchup at, at some point Definitely. in your life. Definitely. And what's the number one brand you buy? Uh, probably Heinz. Okay. That's common, right? It's the biggest brand. Uh, do you always and exclusively buy Heinz? Mm, no, I mean, there's two. What's the other one? Kraft. Okay. And then I got a favorite one in a restaurant, but they won't give me the, the ketchup outside of the restaurant. But anyway. well, th that's a great point. When you go to a restaurant, do you demand that they serve you Heinz or do you eat what they serve? No, I eat what they serve, especially this restaurant in particular. Right. And if you travel for, well, back in the days when we did travel and you needed to go down to the corner store to get some ketchup for your, your grill, did you always demand Heinz or did you buy what was ever in stock? Well, if I had a choice, I'd go with the name brand that I know. But uh, um, yeah, I mean, if there's only one in stock, I go with that. Right. And maybe you talk to someone who says, you know, Heinz is actually full of corn syrup. You need something that's made with better ingredients and pure sugar and not corn syrup. Maybe you should try Sir Kensington's. Would you pick that off the shelf and maybe take Sir Kensington's home? Is this a British brand? No, it's actually it's a it's a new American brand huh. that I've I seen mean, in I some stores. Anything, I'm pretty open, but uh, never heard. Right of there, you go. So one of the the empirical laws is we buy around. We are not usually that exclusive, or if we are, it's for one or two categories in our life. Like maybe you only ever buy the same brand of socks, but when it comes to underwear, you try a few different things. Or maybe you, you do like Heinz and that's your primary ketchup, but you also try other brands. Not only is that an empirical truth that we tend to not be that faithful, but what other brands you buy is completely predictable based on the market share of those other brands. Hmm. So Heinz being the biggest brand in America has the most buyers who buy it the most often. And then if you're a primary Heinz person, I could predict that your second most likely brand to buy would be 
Kraft because it's the second largest brand. And then I could predict that once in a while you might buy Sir Kensington's because it's a very tiny brand. Similarly, if I find someone who loves Sir Kensington's, then I could predict that they probably also buy other brands and the number one brand or the number two brand that they probably buy is Heinz because it's the largest in the category. So they're very, very predictable patterns of, of buying around based on the market share of these brands that reinforce the market share of these brands. And here's a little nuance that, that is more of a surprise to a lot of marketers that the heavier you are into a category, like the more into ketchup you are, the more brands you buy, not the fewer, but the more. And that's counterintuitive, and it only shows up when you really look at this large panel data set and can see that people who buy two or three bottles of ketchup a year, yeah, mostly they buy Heinz or they buy one or two brands because they can't buy more than one or two brands. They're only buying two or three bottles. But someone who buys 20 to 30 bottles of ketchup a year, they're probably only buying eight to 10 bottles of Heinz, and they're exploring all these other brands of ketchup. And if, if you think about any brand or any, any category where you're a heavy buyer, like you're really into whiskey or you really love hot sauce or uh, you really eat a lot of peanut butter, you can probably check with your own self that, yeah, that's actually true. I do have a favorite or I do get into habits, but I really do tend to try a lot of different things. Well, then uh, let me ask you this. If it's largely based on market share, how does a brand win then? I mean, how do you start to change that perception using data and what you've discovered to position, uh, was it Sir Kensington's? Yes. How do you position them as, hey, if you see Heinz or Sir Kensington's on the shelf, this is why you should buy Sir Kensington's. Yeah, that's tricky because so many of these markets are fairly mature and brand share doesn't change that frequently. And again, when you look at the panel data over uh, years and they've had data analyses up to like six or 12 years long, you see that a lot of markets are very, very stable. And only occasionally do you have something like Absolute Vodka or Tito's rocket through the yeah. charts and get to the top. And so those occasions are rare, which means a lot of what you're doing as a marketer is treading water or making very small incremental changes of a half of a percent or 1% of market share a year to grow pretty slowly. So what do you do? I mean, what do you do? Yeah, that's a part of it is that the laws kind of tell you what you're constrained by and the laws don't always tell you how to, how to do the things that, that aren't explicable within the laws. So for instance, um, a lot of people, most people don't think much about brands. You and I are too busy taking care of our families or trying to get exercise or trying to stay sane during the pandemic to really care about our razor brand or our ketchup. So we don't think about them much, right? Yeah. So what you need to do as a marketer is find ways to get in people's minds and stay salient or stay top of mind. There are lots of different terms for it, yeah. but just stay in there so that when I do go back or when you do go back to buy some razors or buy some, uh, some ketchup, you at least even think of Sir Kensington's. Yeah. 
Yeah. There's that old phrase, uh, you wouldn't care so much what other people think of you if you knew how little they thought about you. <laughs> and this is a hard lesson for brands because brands, people, of course, are in, immersed in their own brand and they think everyone else thinks about ketchup as much as they do. It's so, true. And yeah. I find a lot of them, especially startups that are trying to break into markets like ketchup, don't really underestimate the, the value of brand and marketing. And they, they, they think, and, and most of these startups are guilty of this, they think, oh, I just built this amazing ketchup. It tastes better than Heinz and it's better for you. But that doesn't matter. You're trying to break patterns of people. Right. And, you know, the, uh, the perceptions of people and then they got distribution, whether it, Heinz has been all over for hundreds, I think a hundred years. So that, that's yep. a tough thing to break. Those are the two, you just kind of nailed it there, though the way the Ehrenberg Bass folks talk about it, it's a little oversimplified, but it works, is it boils down to two things, mental availability and physical availability. The mental is, are you even in someone's mind so that they're even, they even know what Sir Kensington's is, that it even exists? And then physical availability, when you go to the store, when you log on to your Peapod, can you even find it to buy it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and those are both hard. I know they're, I mean, it, it's certainly hard. I, I, I do want to bring us back to the actual science that you're, you're, you're bringing up, the hidden science. So tell us what you do for brands to surface some of this stuff and then how have they used it? One of the ways I help brands is I show them these empirical laws so that they don't have unrealistic expectations about what they can do. For instance, another law is, and this is a terrible name, but it's the NBD, the negative binomial distribution. And you've heard of the bell curve, right? Oh yeah, I'm just laughing at these names. These aren't marketers. Oh, oh God, no, these are <laughs> academics. These are scientists. They are definitely not good at marketing their own no, stuff. That's upper promiscuity was the best name I've heard so far for what you were talking about earlier, but somebody needs to rename these things. So go ahead. Correct. So I call it the, the ski slope. Mm -hmm. So we've got the bell curve. You know what that looks like. Yep. Human height is a bell curve. Yep. You've got a lot of people in the middle, 5'8", five, 5'10". Five, you got a few basketball players at the top, and then you got a few um, jockeys at the short end. Yeah. Brands are not distributed like that, at least when you look at the size of the brands, or also when you look at buyers of your brand. So for instance, we often talk about light, medium, and heavy buyers, but they are distributed on a universal pattern, kind of like the bell curve, but it's a ski slope. So you start at one end of the curve with a lot of light buyers, or actually a lot of non-buyers. So Heinz is the biggest brand in America for ketchup, but they probably still only have, let's say a 40 or 50% penetration into people's households. So half of Americans don't even eat Heinz. And then you've got a lot of people that buy Heinz once a year and they're light ketchup eaters or light Heinz eaters. And then you've got half of those, again, that buy Heinz twice and then half of those that buy Heinz three times and it slopes off like a ski slope. Mm. Okay. So it's a negative binomial, that's the technical term, but it's the ski slope curve. And every brand's buyers have the shape of a ski slope. A lot of light buyers and very few heavy buyers. And this is what's really surprising. If you believe in passion brands and niche brands, 
you think that these brands have a few light buyers and a lot of heavy buyers who buy it all the time. Harley Davidson is a great example. Everyone always invokes. Not even Harley breaks this pattern. Most people who buy Harley buy one. And very few people buy more than three or four Harleys. Well, that's because they're expensive and they last, right? True, true. But if you're a real motorcycle head and you have the cash for it, over the course of your lifetime, you might have owned 10 or 20 different bikes and bought and sold them. Okay. And even Harley, heavy Harley buyers, just like with Heinz Ketchup, they buy a lot of other brands. Other motorcycle brands? Oh, yeah. I'm surprised by that. Yep. Well, that's because, again, we have this perception that's yeah. only a tiny sliver of the whole panel. The perception is Sturgis, the Harley rallies, or occasionally when you're in the mountains here in Colorado, you hear six or 12 Harley riders go by on a Sunday afternoon and it, it blows out your eardrums. So you assume, oh, these are hardcore Harley people and that's all they ride. Mm -hmm. But that's a fantasy and that's a belief that marketers have developed. It's not true in the market. In the market, even the distribution of Harley owners is a ski slope. Lots of light Harley buyers who only buy one or two Harleys in their life. It's a longer purchase cycle than ketchup, I would hope. And then a few medium Harley buyers who buy some, you know, two or three or four, but they start to buy more bike brands too, like Honda or BMW or whatever else, Suzuki. And then very, very few heavy Harley buyers. No, I, I never would have guessed that. I would have thought they'd been loyal to the bone. Most of yep. Yep. When you talk to these Harley owners, they're like, what do you mean Honda? We're not buying these Japanese made or, or uh, foreign made bikes. It's Harley or nothing. That's what you hear. But that's what, that's what you hear. But that's also because when someone wants to understand Harley riders, they cherry pick the people they want to talk to. Hmm. And, and they go find Harley loyalists to see what makes Harley loyalists tick and why they love Harley. Yeah. They rarely go to the run of the mill guy. I got a friend of mine who's got a Ducati. He uh, has a, another weird German bike right now that he really likes, or maybe it's Swiss. Uh, he also owns a Honda. And in the past, he's owned a couple Harleys and a couple Indians, but he's gotten out of the, the large American roadsters, as he calls them. Got it. Okay. Interesting. But those aren't the people you hear about. So how do you find the people you don't hear about? Because it sounds like there's more of them than they are the loyalists. And You're right. And then how do you get the information on something like that? And then how do you use it to your advantage? I mean, I suppose if you're Honda, you could use that to your advantage because maybe you didn't market to Harley owners before, but the data says maybe you should. Correct. The data says that we brands share customers much more than they think they do. And this goes back to the, the brand promiscuity law that everyone's a little promiscuous and they're a lot more promiscuous than you'd think. A lot of cheaters out there, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're just, the, we're more of a polygamous buying culture than we are monogamous. All right. Uh, so, yeah. So, uh, so, first of all, that pokes a hole in the, kind of the fantasy that a lot of marketers have about brand loyalty. And then, as a researcher, your job is to go out and find a good, accurate sample of buyers that includes light buyers and medium buyers along with your heavy buyers. 
I'm just thinking through this and I'm, I'm thinking, how could marketers take advantage of this information then? I mean, you're saying that shoppers are more promiscuous than most marketers believe. Mm-hmm. I'm not doubting the data. I've never done the research. I, you know, I read the research and I try to apply it to my, my, my client base as best I can. So how, if you're listening to this as a marketer, how do you take this information and use it to your advantage? A couple ways. First of all, it means you have to focus on light buyers a lot more than you thought. And this is true, again, for everyone from Coca-Cola to Patek Philippe, the luxury watches or uh, Rolex. Yeah. Uh, if people buy Rolexes, they probably also buy a lot of other brands, or maybe they've only bought one Rolex in their life. Same with Coca-Cola. Most of Coca-Cola's customers are light buyers. They buy one or two Cokes a year, but that makes up half of their volume are these light or medium buyers. So first of all, you've got to orient yourself to those light and medium buyers and address them. That's a major change from what we hear a lot about from the 80-20 rule, which is 80% of your money comes from the top 20% of your buyers. It turns out it's probably 50-20, but it depends on the category. So half of your revenue is really coming from your heavier buyers. But the other problem is you can't always either keep those heavy buyers or make those heavy buyers even heavier. That's a losing battle. Every brand has what's called churn. It's another scientific law of brands. Roughly 20% of your buyers will no longer be your buyers next cycle whether that's Honda or Harley or Heinz. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're already getting, let's say, eight bottles of Heinz ketchup a year, how in the hell are you going to get influenced or persuaded to buy 10 bottles a year? The only way to do that is to give them other foods that require ketchup. (laughs) That could be. Yes. But it's much more likely if Heinz wants to grow instead of making you go from eight to 10 bottles a year, they should just get a few more customers, a few more households to buy Heinz. Some of those will be light buyers. Some of those will be heavy buyers. Isn't the problem there that finding the light buyers and marketing to them might be more expensive than the revenue you get from them? Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's a constant debate or question about cost of acquisition And isn't it better to focus on your current customers and your loyal customers? But over and over, the research, the science shows that brands that grow, brands that want to grow, focus on customer acquisition, focus on the light and medium buyers. And you see it in big brands. Coca-Cola knows what they're doing. They don't just focus on their loyalty program and, and avoid everyone at the stadium. No, they address every single person at the stadium and every single person with a TV on. Hmm. Well, I, I like it. I mean, it's such a delicate balance. Um, one is it might cost you more to find those Heinz buyers, but the lifetime value of those Heinz buyers might more than make up for it. It's really, really difficult uh, as a small business marketer to think uh-huh. of it in those terms. I, I could, I definitely see a Kraft or Heinz or some of the bigger brands thinking about it that way. But if you're a small business owner thinking about it, you know, it's challenging for them because they're like, I need it now. I need profit now. I'm not thinking that far out in the future about lifetime value and all that kind of stuff. Sure. 
I would I would say that one thing that the science does say is that even if you're a small brand, you still need to address the largest chunk of the market that you can. And you're right, it can be expensive. So sometimes you've got to punch above your weight and do PR stunts and do outrageous things. Yeah. And you've seen small brands do this all the time, right? A lot of times it does work. It does. So you got to you got to be creative about how you grab people's attention and get into their their mental availability if you don't have the money to buy your way into there. But it means no matter how small you are, you still have to focus on customer acquisition. You still have to focus on the largest audience you can because if you just focus on your loyalists, you're going to shrink. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what else should we talk about in regards to the hidden science of brands and buyers before we, we wrap up? I, I know there's so much here. Oh, yeah. Like, like, let's say I'm a marketer. Actually, I do have a question. Let's say I'm a yep. marketer and I, I want to explore this a little bit more. How would I go about it, either with you or just in general? Well, there is one book that really popularized a lot of these laws about eight or 10 years ago called How Brands Grow by Professor Byron Sharp. And he is from the Ehrenberg Bass Institute in Australia. So he is deeply, deeply enmeshed in this science. Uh, it's a great little book. It was published by Oxford Press and it was never intended to be a big hit. And certainly it's not as big as anything Malcolm Gladwell did, but for, a, for an academic book, it, it blew up pretty well. So that's a good place to start is Byron Sharp's How Brands Grow. There are a couple other organizations that focus on popularizing and applying this science. Mine is one of them, Applied Brand Science. Uh, there's one in the United Kingdom called FWorks, E-F-F, for effectiveness. That's part of the IPA, which is their advertising trade group over there. And then there are a few other practitioners and, and consultants who, who apply these laws and also see the limitations of these laws, uh, like Mark Ritson. And that's because while the laws are true and the laws are real, they don't always tell you what to do. They're, they only go so far. They only explain, let's say, half of the market structure. And then that leaves you still wondering, well, that leaves me with half of the market unexplained and I don't know what to do. And that's where creativity comes in. Okay. Yeah, that, that's, that's very interesting analysis. Um, and it's, it's so interesting to kind of think about because, you know, I think most brands, most small companies, large companies, their biggest issue is how do I, A, find those people that would buy my product and then B, you know, put an offer in front of them that they they will see as something that's worthwhile. You know, either right. it's at the store, or online, or whatever. And then, how do I keep them as a as a loyal customer to the best I can, given the promiscuity that you were you were referencing? It's just such a, a challenge, and it's it is so unique. Well, here are a couple. There's another law I want to mention uh, before we wrap up which doesn't so much come from Ehrenberg Bass Institute. It comes more out of the IPA in the UK that I mentioned, which is about advertising. And the, one of the common beliefs of advertising is that it's persuasion. It's salesmanship on paper and that you need to be persuasive and you need to provide RTBs, reasons to believe. 
in your advertising. And it turns out that a lot of the most effective advertising actually is more emotional and it's more about being interesting. That's the word I love. Mm. That's uh, interesting because things that are interesting, first of all, are noticed yeah. at all. And it's hard to get noticed these days. And secondly, they're memorable. And if you've got to go weeks between buying ketchup or months or years between buying a motorcycle, you need to stick in people's craw. You need to get lodged in their brains so that they, again, remember that you exist at all when they're back in the buying mindset. Okay. So your ads have to be interesting. That's the primary driver of advertising effectiveness. And the more, and this is proven science, the more interesting they are, the more purchase and revenue activity. Because yeah, what if yeah, the more effective your ads are? What if you're interesting and your product's crap? Well, okay. Interesting ads can, <laughs> interesting ads for bad products only help sink a company faster. <laughs> faster. Right. Because it brings more attention to how crappy your products are. <laughs> right. So absolutely. If you want, but here's an example. People think that uh, advertising helps with loyalty. It doesn't. Great product yeah. or great service helps with loyalty. I mean, advertising. That's key that you just said there. A lot of people don't yes. understand. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Product great product or service yeah. helps with loyalty. Advertising can help remind people yeah. that you're a good product or service and that, oh yeah, I had a good experience with Sir Kensington's last time. So I think I'll go buy it again. I'll make sure I go to that grocery store that carries it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We're really wrapping things up now. And uh, I end every podcast with two final questions. The first is, what's the hottest digital marketing technology that you recommend today? And if you don't remember what you said, you said exploding topics. Exploding topics is super fun. What is it? It's a company that is kind of Google Trends on steroids or a multi-sourced Google Trends. Google Trends is great and you can see what people are searching on, but exploding topics finds data from other places and shows you what topics are blowing up right now. So one of the recent ones was uh, non-see-through leggings. Non-see-through leggings. Okay. Uh, because people are at the, well, they're not at the gym, but they don't want leggings that become see-through when they're doing exercise. Oh, so they want, yeah. They want leggings that hide everything properly. Got it. Uh, so that's a, a silly little example, but uh, exploding topics is great because it just gives you the pulse of what are things that are bubbling up really quickly. And so marketers could take that information and utilize them in their interesting ads, for example. Is that kind of a... Yeah, you could do it in two ways. One is you can certainly use exploding topics to understand what products or services to actually make. For instance, another thing that's really blowing up right now is home gyms, as you can imagine. Yeah, right. Because everyone's stuck at home. Yeah. Or you can use this, again, to make your stuff more relevant or interesting. So... If you're trying to sell Sir Kensington's ketchup and you realize that there's this funny little truth about see-through leggings, maybe that can inspire an interesting, weird, creative little piece of advertising. Yeah. Okay. So I like exploding topics. It's a, it's a good pulse on what's, what's bubbling up in the world. Yeah. And by the way, if you're listening to this uh, and you want to know the website, it's explodingtopics.com. So pretty simple. 
Okay. Yeah. And then the, 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 the last question is, who's the most influential person in marketing today? All right. Remind me again. Who did I write? <laughs> I think I remember. Uh, Sundar, is it Pache? Yes. The head of Google. The head of Google. Okay. Tell yes. us why. Well, Sundar Pachai, I think that's how it's pronounced. Uh, he runs basically the most important company when it comes to advertising in the world. Google, you know, it owns everything. It owns our email. It owns our maps. It owns our, our search bar. Uh, and Sundar now is at the helm and he is the one who ultimately decides what features are developed and launched, what the algorithm does, how the ad platform works. And that's for all of Google's properties. And, and the key ones, of course, are Google, Google Maps, which most people don't realize is itself a major search engine, and uh, YouTube. Yeah. And these are just vital and important marketing platforms for everyone around the world. I think he's the most interesting person right now. Okay. So this is a very interesting discussion, very unique in, into what we normally do, but very relevant, very important. How do people get a hold of you? Um, and then I know you got a book coming soon. Why don't you tell us about first your book and then how do people get a hold of you? Sure. Uh, the book will, I think, be called Idiots on All Sides, What Everyone Gets a Little Bit Wrong About Marketing. Uh -huh. Because there's truth, but there's a lot of BS as well. But everyone's a little right and everyone's a little wrong. So I try and cut through the fiction and get to the fact. And I, I help popularize these laws that, as you heard, are terribly named by the academics. Well, I, I don't think the book is terribly named. I think it's very relevant. Idiots on all, all sides, right? Yep. Okay. And, and then if, if people want to get in touch with me, they can find me at appliedbrandscience.com. My email is ehd at appliedbrandscience.com. I'm also pretty active on Twitter at E.H. Decker. So people can just connect with me there or find me on LinkedIn as well. Excellent. Well, Ethan, great having you on the show. Mark, it's my pleasure. And, you know, we will probably have to schedule something like six months out so that we can go cover a few more topics that, uh, that I think I've got a way of structuring the next episode. So let's, let's stay in touch. I would love that. I'd be glad to. Thank you. Thank you. This has been great.